our text this morning is a great one for Sanctity of Life Sunday because it features the image of God, and the image of God begins in humans, uh, in children, sort of before they take their first breath. We know that from the scriptures. So great text this morning featuring the image of God. Let's begin with a quote from a fellow by the name of Thomas Ashbrook, and he writes concerning the spiritual life, but he also writes about his own experience in the spiritual life, and he says this, in my youth, I unknowingly made two promises in response to my family setting. First, I promised myself that I would never become the failure that my father had become because of his alcoholism, and second, I would become the success my mother had always wished for herself. Therefore, I worked hard to do well and to project a successful person. Let me ask you a question. Does that sound familiar? Not exactly familiar, but somewhat familiar. Have you sought to be and to project as a successful person in the hopes that doing so would bring fulfillment? And how's that working for you? And what might God have to say about that? He has a lot to say about that, by the way, beginning in Genesis chapter 1. So come back with me then to the beginning, to the sixth day of creation when God created humans. Now, Paul Taylor took us through the first five days of creation last week, and now we come to the sixth day when God creates humans. Chapter 1, Genesis, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now we have a poem, first poem in the scriptures. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Let us create God in our image. Who is the us here? There is lots of scholarly debate about this. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure where to land on this. One view says the us is God and the heavenly court, God and the angels. Another view says this is God as a plurality, as in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Whether or not the narrator meant to communicate to us that God as, a, as the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created us in his image, we know that God exists, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, so that we know that we have been created in the image of God. That is the three-in-one image of God. So we've been created in the image of God. Now, the image of God here clearly features both male and female. And notice that there are two genders. There is not one gender. There are not three genders. There are two genders male and female, each bearing the image of God. Now, there is little difference in the words, between the words image and likeness, image of God and then after the likeness of God. Although likeness emphasizes and affirms that though we are created in the image of God, we are not God. We are like God, but we are not like God. I mean, we are, we are like God, but we are not God. And and what we see also in Genesis is that everything up to this point and the creatures and things have been created after their kind. We read that 10 times in Genesis chapter 1, but here we don't read that. Why? Because humans have been created after God's kind. We have been created in his image. Now, it is true 
that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God so that the image of God has been damaged in us, but it is also possible that that image can be restored in us. But let's think for a second, what actually is the image of God? There's debate about this as well, but I think the Apostle Paul clears it up in the book of Colossians and also in the book of Ephesians, where in Ephesians chapter four, he defines the image of God as being equal to the holiness and righteousness of God. So he created us to reflect, to embrace and to reflect his attributes and reflect those attributes out into the world, especially his holiness and righteousness. Now, Paul says that we can be restored as we are being renewed spiritually to the image of God so that ultimately and finally, we will wholly bear the image of God again. Let's look at Ephesians chapter four, verses 23 and 24. Paul urges us to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true holiness, in true righteousness and holiness. Now, there are lots of other verses that Paul uses in his writings to encourage us to be renewed spiritually, and this is one of them calling us, calling for us to put off and to put on and to be renewed spiritually. The Spirit helps us to do this, and especially the Spirit helps us to be renewed in the image of God as we draw near to Christ, who is the image of God. Christ, who is the image of God. So created in the image, created after the likeness of God to reflect his image and his likeness out into the world and then to have dominion over creation. We are God's representative rulers here in creation and and, and obviously if we are created in his image, in his holiness and his righteousness, we are to do so benevolently. We are the wise rulers. We are supposed to be the wise rulers here in creation. We are God's vice regents, if you will. Created in the image of God, according to his likeness. What do you do if you want to understand what God is like? Think of an artist. If you want to understand what an artist is like, who is the artist, one of the things you want to do is look at the artwork. So we've got a gallery over here. This is a new gallery. We'll tell you about this in a little bit. And Martha Rapier is the author of all of these. And, uh, you know, I've seen Martha's work through the years, and I know something about Martha by looking at her paintings. Now, if you want to know something about God, who is an artist, what do you do? You look at what he's created. Obviously, we can look at the heavens. We can look at the earth. But if you really want to know what God is like, where do you look? You look at a human, because only a human has been created in the image of God. You look at a man, you look at a woman, you look at a child, you look into the eyes of someone, there you will see the image of God. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship in heaven, the new creation, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. There are no ordinary people. There are no ordinary people. 
Now you can see the image of God when you look at a human. Now one of the amazing things, thanks to modern technology, is you can see the image of God before that person is born. Through, through an ultrasound images, you can look into the womb and you can see a child. Now the first time I experienced that was the first time I became a father and I looked <laughs> through this ultrasound image, I looked into the womb of my wife and there I could see my daughter, 10 inches in length, one pound in weight, and I was absolutely blown away. That's a, that's a human. Not only is that a human, that's my daughter. And I was worried about her, to be honest with, with you, in there. I was, she looked a little vulnerable. She, was, she stuck her little thumb into her little mouth, and at one point, I could see that she was moving her hands right up to here to her forehead. It looked like she was worried or something like that. I wanted to go in there and help her. But obviously, I couldn't. I had to trust that God was working on her behalf. The image of God. I was blown away by seeing a human in the womb. Now, this account of creation is in contrast to the pagan accounts of origins. The pagans had different kinds of stories than this one. What you have in the pagan accounts is you've got gods, you've got major gods, you've got minor gods. They're warring with one another. They're negotiating with one another. And the minor gods don't want to do all this grunt work. So they convince the major gods to, to that we, what, we need to do, what we need to do is we, have some, we need to have some humans, some humans to do the grunt work, the grunt work that we don't want to do. So in the pagan accounts, the creation of humanity is an afterthought. And what the pagans would do is they would build their temples and inside their temples, they would create images, carve images of their gods and place those images in their temples. Now we know that creation is God's temple. Isaiah tells us that in Isaiah chapter 66, verse one, where God says, heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. So here we are in creation and we have a temple, this is God's temple, but God orders us not to create any images. Don't do what the pagans do. We see that in the Ten Commandments. And one of the reasons he says not to do that is because he's already done it himself. He's created us as humans to show the world something of what he is like. And he has placed us here in his temple, in his creation. Also in the pagan stories, you have the, this whole idea that maybe in some cases the king is made in the image of the gods, but only the king. And of course, biblically speaking, all of us, from the least of us to the greatest of us, so-called, have been created in the image of God and have value. So at this point, it's important to say that... Um, that any account of creation or any origin account that disavows an all-loving, all-powerful creator also disavows, on the face of it, human value. If there is not an all-loving, all-powerful creator, that means no human lives have value. Human life does not matter. There is no dignity at the top of the evolutionary ladder. Any story, any account of this, whether it be a pagan account 
or whether it be a secular account that does not take into account an all-loving, all-powerful creator creates no value for humans. Now, I really, really admire people who have the conviction of their own worldview and are able to articulate the implications of this. One of those people is Jean-Paul Sartre. And he said he believed that we are all here by chance, which many people here believe, not necessarily here, but many people in our world believe, we're here by chance, and that he existed like a stone, a plant, or a microbe. And he says this, I was thinking that here we are eating and drinking to preserve our precious existence, and there's nothing, nothing, absolutely no reason for existing. I think that's true. I think he's right. If his worldview is right, I say his worldview is wrong. Nevertheless, most of us believe or at least want to believe that we have value. But we question our value. How do I know that I have value? How do, how do I know that I'm worth something? Well, many of us then proceed on a lifelong endeavor to try to prove that we have value to ourselves and to our world. And maybe we can convince others that we have value, that we are important. So we bow down before the God of success. We try to, in Ashcroft's words, be and project as a successful person. And I speak from experience here. I, have, I too have bowed down before the God of success and I can tell you that it is a cruel taskmaster. One of the most successful people in our world is media mogul Ted Turner. And he was talking about success one time in an interview, and he said this regarding success, incredibly successful person. Well, I think it's kind of an empty bag, success, to tell you the truth. But you have to really get there to really know that. You have to get there to really know that. Or in the words of Emily Dickinson, one of our greatest poets, Success is counted sweetest by those who ne'er succeed. There's truth in that, right? The promise that academic or career or financial success leads to fulfillment is a lie. It is the central illusion of our age. It is a mirage in the desert that vanishes if you ever manage to get there. It just vanishes. And then you see another mirage out in the distance, another mirage of success, and you go after that, and it also vanishes once you get there, if you ever manage to get there. And this lie is falling hardest on our young people who are buying into it, and many of us are feeding it to them. What can liberate us from the God of success? Verse 28. And God blessed them and said to them, the humans, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything that moves on the earth. God blesses them, which in this case means that he endows them with the capacity to do what he has charged them to do. What has he charged them to do? Be fruitful, 
be, and multiply and fill the earth. Obviously, he's provided for that because why? He creates the male and female. It takes male and female to be fruitful and to multiply and then to fill the earth. This is what God has been doing so far in Genesis. We see that he forms the earth and he fills the earth. And now he wants humans to participate in all of this, to also fill the earth. Fill the earth with what? With humans. Humans made in the image of God. So we participate in this, this grand project of filling the earth with people created in the image of God who can reflect the image of God out into creation. Which raises the question, if you are not fruitful and if you don't multiply, are you being disobedient to God? Well, the answer is, of course not. Otherwise, Jesus was disobedient to God because he was not fruitful. He didn't multiply. Then again... I think we're his children. <laughs> I think he's, he was very fruitful. I think he multiplied. I think we today are the children of Jesus. And of course, then the, the, the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 would have no meaning. But of course they have meaning. And it is possible, of course, as you move forward in the New Testament, to be spiritually fruitful. The same word is used in the New Testament to speak of what we can do as followers of Jesus to be spiritually fruitful. And we can do that not least by making disciples. We can be spiritually fruitful. We can multiply. And of course, also as you go into the New Testament, we, we realize that we are supposed to have dominion, dominion over creation. But then we have this foe who emerges in Genesis chapter 3 by the name of Satan, and we see the him in the rest of the, uh, in the scriptures in the Old Testament. We get into the New Testament as well. And then we see that now we, God blesses us to have dominion over Satan and his demonic armies, especially as we take up the armor of God. So therefore, be strong, be courageous, take up the full armor of God, for the victory belongs to the Lord. So we're supposed to reproduce and we're supposed to rule. Now ruling over creation does not mean worshiping creation. This is where humans went wrong. In the beginning, they started worshiping not the creator, but the creation, according to Paul in Romans chapter one, and everything fell apart from there. And of course, we're not supposed to ruin creation. We're supposed to rule over it wisely, neither worshiping nor ruining. God provides for us so that we can do what he has charged us to do, not least by providing us with food. Verse 29 to the end of the chapter. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast... And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So here we see that God has provide, provided food for humans and for animals and once again, in Genesis, we see this word seed. We saw that earlier in, in, uh, day, in day three, where God creates seeds. And the interesting thing about seeds, as Paul Taylor pointed out last week, is that seeds reproduce. They, they're fruitful. They, they multiply. 
They create bushes and they create trees and they create food. And those seeds then coming from the fruit then fall to the ground and they create more bushes and more trees and more food. And so God says, I'm providing for you in this way. I'm providing food for you in this way. And this food is going to reproduce. And of course, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus uses seeds at the basis for three of his parables to show us how we can cast the word and how we can be fruitful and multiply. And now at the end of creation, at the end of the sixth day, the narrator says, behold, take a look at this. Take a, take, take, just stand back and take a look at all of this. Take a look at what God has done. And now he says, it was very good. Earlier we saw Throughout the uh, early verses of Genesis, that when God creates things, he saw that it was good. And now he can say, when creation is finished, when he has finished his artwork, and now that humans are in place to fill the world with his image, now it can be said, it is very good. Let's think about this now. Created in the image of God to reflect his holiness and his righteousness. You go to Psalm 8. And the psalmist there reflects on these verses in Genesis. And he says that we as humans have been crowned with glory and with honor. Crowned with glory and with honor. That means we have value. That means you have value. You have worth. David says this in Psalm 139, and we can say this with him. We can say this to God. Psalm 139, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But you say, I'm a sinner, born to sinners, born into sinners. Indeed, that is true. But you say, the image of God in me has been damaged by sin, especially by my own sin. Indeed, that's true. But I say unto you what the Apostle Paul says to you in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. My sin was great. Your love was greater. So to understand your value, you need to accomplish absolutely nothing. But there is one thing you need to do. You need to peer into the heart of God. For there in the heart of God, you will see his heart as a creator, as a redeemer. You will see his love. You will understand that you have been created in the image of God and redeemed by the blood of his son. Look into the heart of God to understand your value and you will see love. And it is the love of God, especially the love of God as seen in Christ, that liberates us from the clutches of the God of success. Freedom's just another word for nothing left to prove. Well, some of you then are going to ask, what then motivates me? So many people in our world are motivated by their own sense of insecurity And that motivates them to prove themselves to themselves and to their world. 
So many people are motivated by slights and insults and being overlooked. And so many people then say, I'm going to prove them wrong. Is that you? I think that's been me a little bit. You know what I say to all that? Malarkey. It's not biblical. What then motivates us? What does the Apostle Paul say? The love of Christ compels us. You are motivated, properly speaking, from the scriptures by the love of Christ. You understand that God loves you in Christ. That changes everything. Now your motivation is, I am loved so much How do I serve Christ? How do I serve God? How do I go out into the world? Not to prove myself. God has already proved that he loves me. I don't need to do anything else for that. I don't need to prove myself to myself or to my world. The love of Christ compels me. If you don't yet know Jesus and you are bowing down to the God of success and you are feeling that you're never measuring up, May I offer to you Jesus Christ. May I offer to you his blood. Would you consider accepting Jesus into your life to be freed of the God of success? Thomas Ashbrook, who sought to be and project as a successful person, grew. Listen to this. In my youth, I unknowingly made two promises in response to my family. Well, that was the first one, yeah. Second one. That was the old Tom. Here's the new Tom. Inside, I was really a scared and lonely little boy who desperately needed to be loved and affirmed. It took many years for me to learn to let the scared little boy show even to God. When I did, to my amazement, no one criticized me told me to shape up or grow up. They simply loved me where I was. My true needs began to be met in healthy ways, and I was freer to be myself. More important, I began to let God love me in the ways I most needed, and I grew spiritually and emotionally. What is the God of success? And who is Satan? who is behind the God of success, that they should defy the armies of the living God. Brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, for the victory belongs to the Lord. You have value. So does everyone else. You have no more or less value than anyone else. Everyone else has value. Everyone else has value, but I would single out for special treatment the marginalized, the disenfranchised, the poor, the unpopular, and the overlooked. Why do I I single them out? Because they're not singled out. Because they're overlooked. Therefore, they need special treatment and special consideration. There are no ordinary people. Now, at the outset of our service, we highlighted real options, which champions children in the womb, vulnerable children in the womb before they are born, 
Now, we also partner with this ministry called International Justice Mission, which champions the vulnerable outside the womb. Here's their mission. Their mission is to combat trafficking, slavery, abuse of power, and violence against women and children all over the world. Amen. So in November, we had the honor of hosting the International Justice Mission Bay Area, Bay Area-wide prayer gathering, and it was an awesome thing to be a part of. It was probably about two, maybe two and a half hours, basically of prayers being offered up for the ministry and being offered up for the people that the ministry is trying to serve and rescue and help and love. So if we were all created in the image of God, then what Jean Valjean sings in Les Miserables is true. To love another person is to see the face of God. So here we are, created in the image of God, but the image of God has been damaged in us. But if you know Jesus, you can draw close to Jesus, and the image of God of you is being restored as you are being renewed, as you are drawing close to Christ. And one day, according to the scriptures, the image of God in us as followers of Jesus will be completely restored. We will be whole. All of this brokenness within us that we struggle then to sort of embrace and reflect the image of God, all of this brokenness will be healed. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, that would be Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, that would be Christ. Can you imagine what that would be like? To completely bear the image of Christ in our beings and who we are and to sense that and to feel that, that's the journey we're on and that's where we are heading. There was a woman once who wanted to learn about what it meant to be a silversmith. So she went to visit the silversmith and she asked him lots of questions. And she learned a lot about what it meant to be a silversmith and how the silversmith went about his work. Toward the end, she asked one final question. Sir, how do you know when the refining process is complete? And he said, it's quite simple, ma'am. So when I look into the silver and I can see my image in the silver, I know that the work is finished. One day, the refining process in your life, if you believe in Jesus, is going to be finished. And God is going to be able to look into your heart and completely see himself reflected back to him. Would you please stand? Well, these are important truths that we need to believe. We not only need to speak them and hear them, we need to sing them. This helps us really to believe what we are hearing is when we sing them as well. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine, Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. So we sing, what a beautiful name it is. So we sing, your sin was, uh, my sin was great, your love was greater.